Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's episode is a big Q&A catch-up in which we answer questions about hydration, cortisol, nicotine, warming up, resensitizing our muscles to hypertrophy stimuli, why deadlifts are so fatiguing, and much more. We've also got a surprise announcement. We've got a special bonus episode coming one week from today, which is going to feature the entire team of mass research reviewers. So, Greg and I will be joined by Dr. Eric Helms and Dr. Mike Zordos to discuss our favorite studies from Volume 4 of the Mass Research Review, which covers the most notable exercise and nutrition studies that have come out in the year 2020. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only full-time permanent host, Eric Trexler, and today I'm joined by a special temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing today? Doing well. How are you, Eric? I am doing well. So uh, before we get into the hard-hitting content for today's episode, a couple announcements. Today is going to be a pretty straightforward Q&A episode. We're basically going to catch up on a bunch of questions that have been coming in from listeners. Uh, But the big news is we have a special bonus episode coming next week. So we normally do episodes every other week. We're going to have back-to-back episodes Next week, the reason it's a a very special episode is because we're going to have the whole mass crew on the air uh, talking about research. So it's going to be you and me, and it's going to be Dr. Eric Helms, Dr. Mike Zordos, all of the reviewers for the mass uh, research review that comes out monthly. And the reason we're doing it, uh, first of all, it's going to help us raise some awareness about our big annual charity sale that's coming up, our big Black Friday sale. Uh, which is going to contribute uh, a lot of proceeds toward the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which uh, obviously is exciting. They, they do a lot of really important work. Um, but it's also going to be a super informative episode. So we're going to go through our favorite studies from the past year. Volume 4 of Mass covered all the most important research that came out in the year 2020. A lot of people are saying best year on record. Uh, so it's going to be fun to go back down memory lane. Uh now, if you're a mass subscriber, you probably know that, that we do roundtable audio discussions every issue, every month. But this episode is going to be different. So, you know, even if you've heard some of the roundtable discussions about these studies, I think you're still going to get a lot of new information from it. So uh, it's going to be great. We're going to be able to talk about a lot of really cool research from the past year. We're going to have some special guests. And I'm kind of treating it like an open tryout to see if I can finally fill that permanent uh, co-host position. So we'll see if if maybe Zordos or Helms bring some bring some energy to the table, bring some new perspectives. But uh, after that, we'll get back on the regular regular uh, schedule with episodes every other week. So before we get into today's questions, I want to sell out really quickly. Remember, go to BulkSupplements.com, use the code SBSPOD in all caps. That'll get you a 5% discount off of your order. And we've been having some good discussions lately in the Stronger by Science Facebook group and the subreddit. So uh, if you're not part of those groups, go ahead and join those and join in on the fun. Also, we send out periodic research updates via email. So if you're not on our newsletter email list, be sure to get on that as well. I'll leave the links for all three in the description of today's episode. So normally we have a good news segment sometimes there's good news in it, sometimes not. Today we have an objectively bad news segment followed by a good news segment. So starting out the bad news, for our international listeners, Oregon is a state in the United States and in the U.S. And and it's not one of the good ones. Well, as we'll see, it's certainly not. 
you know, and states kind of do their own thing in America sometimes, and then they'll argue with the federal government. It's it's a lovely system we've got going on here. But uh, so Oregon made some made some headlines with the last election cycle. They uh, basically decriminalized small amounts of like all drugs. And the the obvious bad news component is that the moral fabric of Oregon, all of the family values, it is fully decayed. Um, there are no families. There are no values in Oregon anymore, which is a shame. However, I'm call me an optimist. I'm always looking at the bright side. This is at least definitive proof of the gateway theory that, that marijuana is a gateway drug. They, they decriminalize marijuana, then they legalized it. And now all of a sudden they decriminalized everything else. It's total debauchery. And you had a good point that, based on the very strong slippery slope logic, it might not be long before there's actually government mandated required drug use in Oregon. Dude, the the friction coefficient on that slope is minuscule at this point. Yeah, it, it's become a runaway train and I don't know where it's going, but I'm I'm certainly comfortable speculating and I'm sure it's going to legally required uh, use of really hard drugs. I mean, probably so. I... I can't conceive of any other potential outcome. So that's the bad news, but we, we also have some good news. Um, so going down to Florida, gotta love Florida. Um, <laughs> well, actually before this, uh, can I just boot in with the, with a piece of good news real quick? Sure. So, uh, after our next episode that's coming out next week, uh, we're actually going to be taking about a month off because we're actually moving to Oregon. <laughs> completely unrelated to the last segment. Absolutely, yeah. Um, okay, now now let's visit a, a good family value state down in Florida. Never strange news coming out of Florida. Um, so so in Florida, there, there was an Ironman triathlon, which is a, a fairly typical occurrence, but this is a very special Ironman uh, marathon because triathlon. Uh, Chris Nickich. Uh, made history in this uh, Ironman triathlon as the first person with Down syndrome to complete one. And so uh, this is, uh, I mean, 2.4 mile swim. First of all, I can't swim. So that's completely off the table. 112 mile bike ride. Absolutely not. I don't even want to drive 112 miles <laughs> in a car. Uh, and then, you know, I don't know the exact order, but on top of that, a 26.2 mile marathon run uh you you've got the order correct i'm pretty sure cool so that's a lot of stuff man that, that that's absolutely remarkable uh so congrats to chris and then chris on instagram people asked him you know dude like reflect on this like and his, basically his his message was uh onward and upward time to set a new and bigger goal for 2021 so pretty badass you love to see it yeah that's pretty cool uh, so I also have, uh, you know what? I, I don't know that I can call this a piece of good news or bad news. Uh, it's more just, uh, an indication of Americans having just on average completely pathological sense of overconfidence. Uh, so this headline, uh, cooking skills have improved so much in 2020 that 40% think that they're ready to compete on MasterChef. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's 
that's a compelling headline, I would say. Uh, article starts, more than 40% of Americans think their cooking skills have improved so much during the pandemic that they could now compete on TV's Master Chef, according to a new survey. Six in ten say their cooking skills have improved. That is a that is a piece of good news, I would say. Like getting better at cooking, like maybe you can cook yourself more healthy food at home. Uh, you know, cook good stuff for your family, friends, people you care about. So, like six in ten people saying that their cooking skills have improved. That is good. Um, uh, where's the funny part? Uh, yeah, yeah, here it is. On average, respondents say that they've learned to cook eight new dishes in 2020. So just think about that for a second. Uh, they were essentially saying like, look, I wasn't that good at cooking before, but prior to the pandemic, literally the only thing standing between me and being a top chef quality chef was fucking eight new dishes, uh, which is actually pretty wild but you're not even you're not even getting warmed up on the what's that place called the the cheesecake factory i mean you're on page one still dude when uh when cheesecake factory drops their menu on your table it's like it's like a lost tolkien book (laughs) yeah if you aren't like i'm sure it's regional to some extent if you're not familiar with the cheesecake factory i don't care where you live on the planet Google their menu. I'm sure you can find it. You're going to think it's a joke. Yeah, this is probably only a slight exaggeration. I think it has somewhere in the neighborhood of like 300 menu items. It looks like an ambitious project to document the entire range of food dishes that can be made. (laughs) Like, it is absolutely insane. Uh, But I I will be honest, that, that allegedly good news story kind of bothers me a little bit because, you know... People like you and me, we've been working on our cooking skills for years, like really honing our craft. And the fact that these newbies think they can just roll in and say, oh, yeah, I I can make mac and cheese. It's like, dude, you guys have not earned that. Like you haven't done anything innovative. What are you doing with cottage cheese? Probably nothing. And it's a little bit insulting to me. I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way. No, I I agree wholeheartedly. There there are some other good uh, some other good nuggets in here as well. Uh, So the article continues, the secret to perfection, quality ingredients. According to eight in 10 respondents, uh, according to eight in 10 respondents who said that these are what uh, differentiate a great dish from a mediocre dish. That's bullshit. Like it's, (laughs) it's good if you can get your hands on high quality ingredients and you can afford it. But this just proves that these people are shitty fucking cooks. Cause like if you're decent at cooking, uh, you can make like, you know, not great or like middle of the road ingredients into a very, very good meal. And like having really high quality ingredients does step it up a little bit. And, you know, depending on what you're talking about, it could make a big difference. So, you know, if it's like a a USDA prime ribeye versus like a choice cut of sirloin, like, yeah, sure. That's going to make a big difference for like the steak you're cooking. But I mean, for most things, like, skill in the kitchen matters so much more than the quality of your ingredients for for being able to cook something that tastes good. Yeah, I think these people are largely basing their answers on Papa John's pizza commercials. Correct. I think that's their school of thought. The other thing, like, the last good nugget in here uh, is it also asks people um, what... (laughs) 
what dishes that they were like most excited about trying to master in 2021, the number one thing on the list was filet mignon, which I'm just going to be elitist right now. One, filet mignon is one of the most boring cuts of beef that you can work with. Like it's super, ten- it, it's, it's, so one, it's the easiest cut to cook uh, because like it, it's the softest muscle on the cow. There's literally no way to cook a bad filet. Uh, so the fact that one, they think that they can go on MasterChef, but they can't already cook an adequate filet. That's a problem. Two, it's just like, it's so boring because, you know, if you go for like a good tri-tip or a good skirt steak or something like that, it's going to have a lot of like intense beefy flavor. A filet mignon doesn't taste like anything. Like it's the most, it, it it's the cut of steak you give to someone who doesn't actually like beef. Uh, so anyway, I'm just going to be an elitist piece of shit about this, but just the fact that like a lot of them don't already know how to cook an adequate filet and that's the thing that they're most jazzed about. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say they're probably not ready for Top Chef. I just love imagining that the the people responding to this are like, you know, they learned how to cook like macaroni and cheese out of the box. <laughs> and then they're like, for this interview, they're like Steven Spielberg. Like, let me tell you a thing or two about making a film. You know, that they're just <laughs> completely overconfident. Um all right, so that's good stuff. Um, I guess some of that loosely qualifies as good news. Sure. Um, all right, so now we want to get on to some Q&As here. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and kick things off. We, we had a question uh, from Soyboy the uh, Third, And the question was, uh, this individual heard on social media, mostly from the carnivore, keto, and paleo crowds, uh, that a pretty common criticism of vegan diets and basically just eating plants in general, is that they, they have too many anti-nutrients. Um, and so the question is, is there any validity to this concept of anti-nutrients? And if it is a legit concept, to what degree should people be worried about anti-nutrients in the diet? Um, this is a good question. And you know, this is not an area where I've spent a lot of time uh, reading over the years, but you know, I, I, I kind of refreshed my memory, took a look at some materials um, in the process of preparing to answer this. And uh, first, first things first, um, you know, anti-nutrients are a real thing. So it, it's not like they're completely fake news. You may have heard in the past that a lot of plant-based micronutrient sources have comparatively lower bioavailability for some nutrients compared to animal-based sources. And anti-nutrients are not the only thing playing a role there, but they certainly can play a role there. So anti-nutrients, one of the reasons that they come up a lot in nutrition is that they do have the capacity to uh, block or disrupt the absorption of certain nutrients. And so you start thinking about the food matrix or the composition of a meal. And so you're thinking, okay, I'm trying to get this nutrient from the meal, but I've got this anti-nutrient that could be uh, interfering, reducing, or fully blocking the absorption of, of the nutrient that I'm trying to get. So these anti-nutrients are naturally found in a lot of plants. And generally speaking, they're compounds in the plant that are designed to protect the plant from bacterial infections or being eaten by insects, stuff like that. So these anti-nutrients typically have a, a reasonably important role in the plant itself. 
So some common anti-nutrients that you'll see, we'll, we'll talk about phytates, tannins, lectins, oxalates. There, there's a whole long list of, of things that kind of fall under this umbrella. So these anti-nutrients, they, they are real, but they are not nearly as scary or worrisome as a lot of people make them out to be. Um, first and foremost, there are a lot of uh, anti-nutrients that are found in foods that are objectively uh, unequivocally healthy as hell. <laughs> like, uh, you know, pick your favorite. I, I'm sure there are some people who would equivocate about that. I mean, pick your favorite vegetable that's just absolutely filled with, with micronutrients top to bottom. It's probably got an anti-nutrient somewhere in there. I mean, I, I saw a, a very interesting interview with, uh, uh, what's his, what's his fucking name? Paul Saladino oh, okay. on, uh, on Joseph Rogan's podcast, uh, talking about how actually vegetables are bad. Well, that that's one school of thought. That's not my school of thought. Um, <laughs> you know, and th this is, this is one of those things like when you're starting with a premise from anything nutrition related, the, the starting point shouldn't be, okay, let's as a starting point, throw out everything we know about food, right? Like there's a whole lot of really good evidence indicating that a lot of vegetables are really good. And trying to throw out all of that evidence in one fell swoop is quite a tall task. And most who try fail pretty hard. Uh, but anyway, the, the idea that you should uh, completely avoid foods containing anti-nutrients, that's a bad plan. There's a lot of really, really good, nutritious, healthful foods that do contain some amount of anti-nutrients. One of them, by the way, coffee. Coffee has some anti-nutrients. And around this show, we don't tolerate people speaking poorly about coffee. So right off the bat, put me in team anti-nutrient if coffee is in that category. So You said tannins as well, right? Yeah. So that uh, that rules out red wine as well, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Whew. So, I mean, if you had to pick a camp, I know which team I'm on for sure. You know, oh, yeah. give me all the anti-nutrients. So... You know, there's all these foods that are awesome and or nutritious that happen to contain some anti-nutrients. So, of course, the, the solution is not avoidance of anti-nutrients. Rather, you should generally be aware of them, I guess, if you want, if you want to. But, but the important thing to keep in mind is that a variety of different cooking and processing methods uh, do impact anti-nutrients and will uh, diminish their ability to do these nefarious things. So th they'll be removed from, from the food in, in the process of uh, cooking and processing, or th they'll be heavily impacted in terms of their function upon ingestion. So, you know, you could try to account for them uh, when, when you're looking at your, your diet. And the way you would do that without being completely like without getting it'd be really a pain in the ass to go through and look at every little meal you're having and what are the nutrients? What are the anti-nutrients? What's the balance here? I mean, the best approach in my opinion is try to eat a broad, uh, diverse selection of food sources with a variety of different cooking and preparation methods. 
and it's probably going to be fine. And if you're really worried about it, uh, especially if you're if you're really high on the plant-based uh, food sources, like for example, if you have no animal food sources whatsoever and everything's plant-based, you know, like I said, a mixture of food sources, a mixture of uh, preparation methods, and maybe you just shoot for a little bit higher than the recommended intake, uh, you know, the minimum recommended intake for a lot of these different micronutrients. I mean, it, it just that alone, it, it's pretty simple. We really don't have to worry too much about anti-nutrients. You look at studies on vegetarians and vegans who eat diets that are either high in plant foods or exclusively contain plant foods. We don't see, you know, a laundry list of notable micronutrient deficiencies that are actually attributable to the presence of anti-nutrients. There might be some deficiencies if they just don't eat a thing. Uh, that can that can be the case, but we really don't see a lot of uh, disastrous outcomes when we look at diets that happen to have a lot of anti-nutrients naturally present. So um, the best defense. Oh, I should also mention there's also some researchers have suggested that potentially the body may be able to adapt a little bit to the presence of anti-nutrients to increase the absorption of certain vitamins and minerals in the gut. Um, but but the, the best approach, in my opinion, is not to lose any sleep over anti-nutrients. I, I certainly, I, I don't think anyone needs to like really take that deep a dive into their diet and, and kind of suss out all the details of where anti-nutrients are finding their way in. It really just comes down to eating a varied diet with plenty of food sources, uh, different food combinations, different cooking methods. And, you know, one of the things I always say about nutrition is that weird diets can have weird effects. So like if your diet is like 90% raw broccoli, yeah, I mean, then you might want to take a look at that, right? But if you're having a varied selection of food sources with a variety of different cooking and preparation methods, anti-nutrients probably don't even really need to enter your mind at all. And sometimes when I'm trying to like recenter my perspective on a particular nutrition topic, a question I ask myself is just like, if I never learned that this concept existed, would I be completely fine and not regret any of my food choices? And with anti-nutrients, I think probably the answer is like, yeah, if you never learned that they existed, you'd be fine and you wouldn't have to alter your nutrition choices in any way. So it's a thing that's real, but it's not something that should uh, occupy a substantial portion of your mind. It's certainly nothing that you should lose sleep over. Okay, moving on. Um, we've got a question for Greg. Uh, this question's from Keen for Ketamine, uh, probably out of Oregon. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we already have some Oregonians writing in. All right. Um, so here's the question. If I train for hypertrophy and I want to resensitize my muscles to growth slash hypertrophy training, because uh, I've been doing it for months and months and months, should I do one of the two options? Option one is just take one or two weeks uh, either completely off of training or just do some like really, really, really minimal training. Uh, option number two, should I do a longer mesocycle, maybe four to five weeks, but really shift up my, uh, really shift my training style and do a lot more strength tra training rather than hypertrophy focused training? So uh, should I basically take some time off to resensitize my muscles to growth or should I just shift my training style for a, a mesocycle or a block of training? And one caveat that the listener mentions, they are only worried about resensitizing their muscles to hypertrophy. They don't really care about strength or, you know, dropping fatigue via deloading or anything like that. So Greg, have at it. Oh man. So it, it's, it's hard to say. Um, 
So really the best evidence we have of like so-called resensitization to training uh, comes from a couple papers by Aga Sawara and colleagues uh, where essentially what they did is they they had a group of untrained they had two groups of untrained lifters um, and one of them just trained for one study it was 15 weeks another study it was 21 weeks uh, or 24 I think it was 24 weeks whatever a uh, reasonably long period of time one group just trained for the entire period consecutively uh, and the other group basically uh, was six weeks on three weeks off six weeks on three weeks off six weeks on three weeks off etc uh, and in that study, what they found is that uh, over both durations, basically both groups wound up in the same place. So what they saw is basically like a, a logarithmic growth curve in the group of people who just kept training continuously. So faster gains at first uh, and then, you know, still making gains at the end, but the rate of progress slowed down considerably. Uh, and in the group going six weeks on, three weeks off, Basically, what they found is they'd get bigger for six weeks, they'd stop training for three weeks, lose some muscle, and then over the next six weeks, uh, they would gain muscle again at approximately the same rate as the prior six weeks that they were training. Uh, And then they'd take three weeks off again, they'd lose some muscle, train for six weeks, you know, gain a fair bit more muscle. And basically what happened is those two groups wound up in the same place. Uh, So you could look at that and say... Well, okay, theoretically, if we extrapolate that out further, and, you know, let's say this this study ran a year instead of six months, if you kept seeing basically the same rate of progress in every six-week training block in the, in the group that was periodically taking three weeks off, if you kept seeing a similar rate of progress block to block to block to block, and you kept seeing that kind of logarithmic growth curve uh, in the group that trained continuously... Eventually, what you'd see is is the group that was taking three weeks off from time to time uh, exceeding the group that was just training continuously. Um, And so, one, we don't know if that's the case because, you know, study ended after six months. We don't know what would happen after a year. Uh, And two, you know, that's... uh, that's a relatively extreme intervention, I would say. Um, you know, basically taking a third of your time not training, uh, and it was also an untrained subject. So anyway, it, like that, those were certainly an interesting pair of studies. But I don't know. Like, I certainly don't think that that's strong enough evidence to base an entire training paradigm on for well-trained lifters. Uh, so. You know, first off, just acknowledge that is the strongest evidence we have for so-called resensitization, uh, at least as far as it concerns kind of like longitudinal outcomes, I guess. So, you know, of course, if you don't go to the gym for two weeks or something like that, uh, and then you go get a really hard workout in, you're going to be way, way sore than you would have been if you, you know, just kept training normally, hitting every muscle group at least once a week, multiple times per week. Uh, so, you know, there there's some degree of sensitization going on. The question is just, like, is that actually going to help you get bigger? Um, so the, the Agasawara studies are really the only ones kind of looking at that from a longitudinal perspective. Uh, and, and I'd say their results are fairly equivocal. Um, so anyway, first off, I guess I was just kind of contesting the premise a little bit. Uh, <laughs> old Keen for Ketamine was asking... 
how would I resensitize my muscles? Uh, and so first off, I just want to start by saying I'm not sure that you need to, and I'm not confident that doing so would actually improve your rate of progress over the long term. Uh, but okay, let's assume it does. Let's let's say I grant you the premise. Um, personally, I think that the like practical hypertrophy range is large enough that you can basically just set up your training uh, in kind of a, a linearly periodized way such that you maybe start a training cycle doing sets of like 12 to 15 reps. And then, you know, you probably don't want to be working up to like heavy doubles or triples for hypertrophy, but you can probably work up to sets of, you know, somewhere in the five to six rep range. Like that's probably still going to give you a pretty decent hypertrophic stimulus. So over the period of several months, work up from, you know, basically sets of 15 down to about sets of five. And then when you restart your cycle, you're jumping straight from sets of five to sets of 15. Uh, and as someone who does a lot of sets of five and not many sets of 15, I can fucking tell you when you make that jump, when you're accustomed to sets of five and you do a workout where you do 15s, uh, you feel pretty goddamn sensitized to it. Uh, you're you're going to feel that workout the next day. So anyway, I, I think that that's like a practical way um, to, to train in kind of like a logical sequential manner, but then also occasionally have what amounts to a fairly large shift in training stimulus that, you know, even though you're, you, you've continued to train, it, it will essentially amount to a fairly novel stimulus when you go back to it uh, after training with with heavier loads and fewer reps. Um, so that's that's what I think I would personally recommend uh, if the whole concept of of resens resensitization uh, is something that you are worried about. All right, is this a question from someone named Water? No, this is a series of this is two questions oh, from about from two people about water all right so eric you have two questions from two people about the concept of water the first one is water yes or no and i would say yes <laughs> how do i water are you gonna ask me the damn question or not oh so okay i'm sorry i thought that those were your notes i wasn't looking at this too hard okay number one uh i've heard that not being hydrated enough has many implications for performance. I've taken on the challenge of drinking a gallon of water a day, and I'm urinating constantly. How much water do I really need? So question one, drinking a lot, pissing a lot, what do I do? Question two, in my searches on Google, I found many articles saying it's better to sip water throughout the day as opposed to chugging it, uh, as it will absorb into my body more effectively. Is there any truth behind this? Also, I found myself always waking up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Is this happening because my body isn't better absorbing the water throughout the day? Is there any research to back up not drinking water at least an hour or two before going to bed in terms of not waking up at night? Yeah, so we got two questions about water. Um, you know, when I saw these, I started laying out an argument in defense of the concept of water. And then I figured that's probably not <laughs> how we need to spend airtime. I mean, so water's good. Um, you know, how does it affect performance? Well, if you're excessively dehydrated, your performance starts to tank. 
um, it's a pretty straightforward relationship. Um, and then of course, hydration goes far beyond performance. It's just a matter of general health. Um, we need water. Uh, we are largely made of water. Uh, water goes in, water goes out. You can't explain that. And, but, but the the thing about hydration, one of the, the key things that kind of links both of these questions together is when it comes to hydration, of course, we need to make sure we have enough water coming in per day, but there's also a very temporal aspect to hydration. So like a lot of times, you know, being in the bodybuilding world, you'll see the people who are like, yep, gallon a day, every day, baby. But it's like 7 PM and they've had three sips of water. And they're like, well, I'm going to get my gallon in. And it's like, yeah, but you're going to drink all of it at once, immediately piss out all of it, wake up twice during the middle of the night to pee, and you spent most of your day dehydrated, right? Like that that's not a good not a good strategy. So it's not just about the total amount of water. It's about getting hydrated when you wake up and staying hydrated throughout the day. That, that timing aspect is pretty important for us to actually enjoy the benefits of being in, in good hydration status. So... First of all, how much water per day? The uh, the DRI for water is uh, for for males three point seven liters and for females two point seven liters. What's that in freedom units though? Uh, about three point seven quarts, because they're about the same thing. Very cool. So so for males it's a little bit under a gallon, and for females a little under three quarters of a gallon. Um. So uh, the DRI, it's important to recognize, though, that's not just like, hey, here's the jug you fill up at the beginning of the day. That's that's total water intake, total fluid intake coming from the water you drink, other beverages you drink, and then also the water that's present in a lot of foods. And so roughly speaking for the typical diet, whatever that means, uh, about 20% of the water you're taking in is probably coming from food and about 80% is probably coming from beverages. Um, but you know, when, when it comes to these totals throughout the day, I think the question is, you know, what's, what's the downside of going a little over like virtually nothing right now, if you are drinking water to prove a point, you know, like, I mean, if you're doing like, there's that, uh, unfortunately there was that story, there was like a radio, uh, station doing like a competition, I think. It's like, hey, who can drink the most water and not oh, like, no. you know, not like piss or whatever. They did not run that by their lawyers. No. So somebody died, uh, if memory serves. Wait, 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 wait. So they were trying to not pee? I think so. I, I think it was like something like that. Like, Did their bladder explode? No, it, it was uh, just depleted blood electrolyte levels. Okay. Like I, I heard that and I thought hyponatremia. Like yeah, that's yeah. where my brain imme- immediately went. But dude, if people aren't exercising intensely i would just i would just strongly anticipate that they're uh like that they would be unable to stop themselves from peeing prior to consuming enough water to wind up with hyponatremia i don't you know i don't remember the details of the contest but the general concept hyponatremia exists if you're just like going out there to see how much water can I possibly drink without going crazy in a given day, that's not a good strategy. But if we're talking about like, okay, the DRI, the DRI is, you know, 3.7 liters for a male. Let's round it up to a gallon and let's say, well, I've probably got some fluid coming in from food, but it fluctuates day to day. So I'll just drink a gallon of water a day. That's fine. You're going to have, you're not going to be regretting the fact that you went just a touch above the DRI for, for water. Uh, being a little bit below, I mean, you know, if you're only, 
one to two percent dehydrated, two to three percent dehydrated. Once you get close to two and beyond, we can start to see some of those uh, performance impairments depending on what your training looks like. So if you're choosing between being a little over and a little under, I'd say a little over is a nice place to settle. Um, because at the end of the day, if you're just a little bit over your, your daily water needs, you just get rid of it. You go to the bathroom, you pee, it's kind of clear, you're good to go. So um, th the important thing, like I mentioned, though, is it's not just total intake. It's, uh, it's the temporal aspect. So you want to get hydrated when you wake up, get out of bed, start working on your hydration for the day. So the way I always phrase it is get hydrated and stay hydrated, not just like, hey, let's chip away at this gallon. Um, so not everybody needs to drink a gallon. That was just a really convenient bodybuilding thing because like, hey, those gallon jugs do exist. And that's a pretty convenient way to put yourself a little bit above what you need. Um, but, you know, wake up, get some fluid in, uh, continue sipping throughout the day. There is, there is um, you know, to get back to the, the actual question itself, that, that recommendation to sip throughout the day. It's not that the water is not absorbing in other scenarios, but it's just that, you know, water is constantly coming in, going out. And we want to make sure that we have consistent, uh, we want to maintain our hydration status consistently. If we put all of our, our hydration for the day into a very brief window, we're going to pee out a lot of very clear urine and, and then we're going to spend most of the day dehydrated. Um, if we're not mindfully, uh, maintaining hydration status throughout the day. So, you know, three quarters of a gallon, a gallon for most people that should be fine. If you're someone who's, you know, losing a lot of sweat throughout the day, then, then you bump that up a little bit and make sure you got plenty of electrolytes coming into the diet, but pretty simple stuff. Now, fluid intake before bed, that's an interesting topic because we do lose fluid over the, during the overnight fast. And so, uh, you know, the National Sleep Foundation has stated that going to bed, even mildly dehydrated, can uh, disrupt sleep a little bit in some cases. Um, however, nocturia, the, the, the act of waking up to go use the restroom, to wake up and, and pee in the middle of the night, that can be an issue for a lot of people. And uh, obviously that's not ideal. You don't want to be waking up in the middle of the night or multiple times throughout the night, which actually is not that uncommon. Uh, sleep obviously has a really important impact on our ability to make body composition improvements, our ability to, to train effectively, perform well. Uh, so sleep disruption is not a good thing. There's plenty of research on that. So if you are noticing that you are waking up and using the, you know, waking up and peeing once, maybe twice or more, you know, multiple times throughout the night, then you might want to consider tapering your fluid intake in the, in the evening hours. So like I said, wake up, get hydrated, stay hydrated. But during those evening hours, two, three hours before bed, you might consider tapering down your fluid intake uh, just to make sure that you're not going to have to wake up in the middle of the night to use the restroom. So it, it is a challenging balance to reach there. Well, you, and, and I'll just add that that's especially a big deal uh, if a full if a full moon is approaching or has recently occurred, because uh, basically like you know, your body's like the oceans, the moon pulls on it, like the tides. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it, it, it will pull on your bladder and almost kind of like draw you out of bed, uh, via tidal forces. Um, so yeah, like especially watch fluid intake around sleep, uh, around the time of a full moon. 
Yeah, or other moons, sure. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> you've got a fine balance there, right? You don't. It's not serious, by the way. It's not. You go to bed. Uh, you don't want to be dehydrated, but you also don't want to be excessively hydrated, such that you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and, and have to pee. So uh, there's a what I would encourage you to do if you're worried about it. Um, you know, is is kind of keep a hydration schedule throughout the day and kind of figure out what works for you. So obviously, you know, right upon waking, you want to get, you know, a solid, at least a couple cups of, of water in, you know, get your hydration off, uh, get it, get started on the right foot for that day. Maintain hydration by having a schedule of, you know, getting this many ounces, you know, every one, two, three hours, and then figure out what kind of tapering you have to do uh, toward the end of the day to, be in a spot where you're you're not going to bed totally dehydrated, but you're also not waking up in the middle of the night. And I will say this, one of the things that, that can be really helpful uh, for monitoring hydration throughout the day is really simple. It's just a urine color chart. It's not perfect, but it usually does a pretty okay job. Um, and, and basically you can look at the color of your urine and basically say, okay, these shades are, are pretty dehydrated in general. These shades are, are pretty hydrated. And like I said, it's not a perfect solution, but it's pretty easy and uh, it gives you a good indicator. Uh, of course, there are other things that can impact urine uh, color. So you'll have to keep that in mind. Certain vitamins uh, can, can do that. Um, uh, if you have rhabdo, that's going to have a pretty pronounced effect, but you've got bigger problems to worry about. Um, one time, so I I did my, my dissertation on beetroot juice. And so like, one time I got really into beets and I was eating beets a lot because I was, you know, when you're studying this stuff, you, you kind of naturally get an interest. You want to get like a, a first person experience. Uh, and I was on a date and I went to the restroom and uh, I just was like, hey, um, apparently all my urine's red. And I forgot that I had, you know, drastically increased my beet intake. And so I was like, I might have to end this date and go to the hospital because I'm clearly peeing a lot of blood um sorry for the the visual there but it wasn't it's was just beets so if you are consuming like a ton of beets or a ton of highly concentrated beetroot juice using urine color is going to be difficult because it's it's not going to be <laughs> it's not going to be on that chart it's going to be uh pretty red but uh but generally speaking for most people wake up get hydrated stay hydrated taper down toward the end of the day if you need to and just monitor urine color throughout the day it should be a good strategy so one thing I'll add, uh, if if waking up in the middle of the night to pee is a problem, uh, there is a nuclear option that's on the table, uh, so to speak. So I knew a guy who uh, that was apparently just like a huge problem for him. Um, so like I, I would lift with this guy from time to time and he would always just seem like super tired constantly. And I'd ask him like, I'm not going to use his real name, but I'd be like, hey, man, like you seem really beat. Like, is something going on? Is anything wrong? You're like, dude, I just can't sleep. Like, I'm waking up needing to pee like four or five times in the middle of the night every night. The first place my brain went is like, dude, you might be diabetic. Um, anyway, he wasn't diabetic. Like, Or like a prostate issue, right? Yeah, or, or something like that. Anyway, apparently all of that stuff had been checked out. He was fine. Uh, he just was waking up like four or five times in the night every night to pee. That sounds so bad. So anyway, uh, he did something that I would never have thought of. 
Still doesn't seem like a great option, but worked well for him. Dude just got a fucking catheter. Oh, no. Uh... Anyway, um, I mean, I, I was I was in college. I was like 19 at the time. So like that seemed completely bizarre to me. Th- that was the first time I'd ever heard of a catheter. So I was like, what the fuck, dude? Um, but anyway, like literally overnight, uh, his entire like energy level, his vibe, his outlook on life completely changed because uh, he was able to sleep through the night. Oh, man, I, I have so many questions, but we'll follow up off the air <laughs> about that. Uh, okay, mo- moving on. We, we've got a question from Lars. Do not construe that as a recommendation. God, no. That is not a recommendation at all. It is It is an anecdote that worked for one person. Yeah, man. Okay, I have uh, so many questions. We'll, <laughs> we'll deal with that later. Um, okay, we've got a question from Lars here. Why is deadlifting considered more fatiguing than squatting? I've heard and read several recommendations uh, to be a little bit more conservative with your deadlift volume compared to your squat volume, but I never really understood the reasoning behind that. Uh, Is it possible that deadlifting is just super fun? So people, you know, can't stop once they get going and they end up overtraining. What's, what's going on here, Greg? Yeah, so th- that's a good question, um, and I, I think that there are a couple things that could be going on. So first off, uh, yeah, I, I think it is definitely worth pushing back uh, on just the blanket assumption that deadlifts are inherently more fatiguing than squatting, um, and in fact, there's actually some evidence suggesting that they aren't. So uh, our good friend, our mass co-conspirator, Mike Zordos, uh, one of his, I believe, master students uh, actually researched this, um, like basically looking at, at various measures of fatigue after squat versus deadlift training, uh, and basically they were identical. Um, didn't seem like deadlifts were inherently more fatiguing than squats. Um, and another thing I'll note is that, um, like, so a, a couple trends I've noticed is one, uh, weightlifters can get away with doing like pretty heavy clean pulls and snatch pulls uh, pretty frequently. Like they can train those similarly to squats, or at least like more similarly than powerlifters train squats and deadlifts. Uh, and I mean, clean pulls and snatch pulls are essentially. I'm sure there are some weightlifting coaches who will get really mad at me for saying this, but they're essentially just very, very strict deadlifts. Um, and, and when they pull like that, they, they seem to be able to tolerate pretty high volumes and, and pretty decent frequencies. Uh, and the other thing I've noticed is that um, lifters who pull sumo tend to be able to handle higher volume and or higher frequency deadlifts than, uh, than people who pull conventional. You know, not all cases at all times, but that's that, that seems to be the general trend. Uh, so I think that there are two potential things that could be going on here. One is that, uh, so I, I think a non a non negligible factor, which may not necessarily affect objective measures of performance, but might be affecting just kind of subjectively how you feel after a squat versus deadlift workout, is that deadlifts tear your hands up and squats don't. Um, so one of the things I've noticed in my training is that when I deadlift with straps, I can handle higher volumes and recover faster than when I don't. Uh, 
Because, like, my hands don't get as torn up and just, like, my finger flexors and, like, hand flexors don't get as fatigued. Uh, and, and I think that's potentially important because you have just an enormous density of sensory nerves in your hands and fingers. Uh, so if if you if you've never looked this up before, a very cursed Google image search you can do that I strongly recommend uh, is just Google somatosensory homunculus, uh, and it's essentially a, a human body drawn to scale based on sensory nerve density. Um, and so like. Uh, basically like your hands are very, very big. Your lips are very big. Uh, most of the things on and around your head are very big. Uh, most homunculi that I've seen are, are like safe for work, but when they actually draw the whole thing, like sexual organs are absolutely enormous. Uh, but yeah, it's based on like the, the density of sensory nerves. Uh, and so you have a shitload in your hands. Um, and so I think that like when your hands are super fatigued or when they get torn up just from the knurling digging into them, I think that basically like anytime you're doing anything throughout the day that involves your hands, which, you know, people use their hands a lot, I've heard, uh, that's like a defining feature of primates, uh, you're just getting like constant no noxious feedback from your hands to your central nervous system. Uh, and again, like I, I don't think that that would maybe necessarily affect many objective measures of performance other than like hand grip strength but i do think it might just contribute to generally feeling kind of shitty after deadlift workouts uh so I, I think that that's a non-negligible factor in play uh and another thing that that i think is probably more important and that um probably at least to some degree explains one, why people seem to be able to pull sumo more often than conventional and why weightlifters can get away with relatively high volumes and frequencies of, uh, of snatch and clean pulls uh, is basically you can just get away with more spinal flexion in the deadlift than the squat, especially if you're going pretty hard at it. Uh, so, you know, basically if you're squatting and especially if you're high bar squatting, although this does apply to low bar as well, once your spine starts flexing, you're dead in the water. Uh, because like now, like essentially your, your chest and shoulders are falling relative to your hips. Uh, you know, if your spine is flexing and your hips are staying more or less in the same place, the bar might start like shifting up on your shoulders. And at that point you're done. Like you're going to lose the bar over your head. Um, I've seen a handful of lifters, uh, in my lifting and coaching career who, um, like somewhat frequently flexed their spine a fair amount in the squat and still completed the lift. Uh, and, and I know a few more people who, who basically can get away with that when they're like really, really grinding a lift out. But for the most part, like 95, 97, 99% of people, like you, you start experiencing substantial spinal flexion in the squat and you're done. The lift's over. Uh, whereas like you can grind a deadlift with, of pretty fair amount of spinal flexion and like, you know, <laughs> you just get close to lockout, you re-extend your spine, you're fine, you know? Um, and so I, I don't have what one might call science or data to back this up. Um, but my, my experience both as a lifter and a coach is that like, 
if your spinal extensors get really, really fatigued, that makes literally everything else really, really fatigued. Like once you get that that deep, deep low back fatigue, uh, <laughs> shit's fucked for a while. N- not in like a, a, a danger, like injury way. Uh, but, you know, you're just going to feel like shit and your performance is going to be bad uh, until your low back is not as fatigued anymore. Uh, and, and basically, I just think that like con- conventional not crazy strict deadlifts are more susceptible to bring that about than sumo deadlifts, squats, clean pulls, snatch pulls. Um, so anyway, I, I think that those are are the main factors in play. And another one that I'd add to the list as well uh, is, is I think that there's some degree of path dependency in at play here. So um, most of the popular novice programs out there, like I, I don't know what percentage of uh of lifters initially started their training career with uh starting strength or strong lifts but you know i I think is a relatively large percentage uh and you know those programs have people squatting heavy three times a week uh and i'm not sure about strong lifts but in the case of starting strength like the deadlift training is one set of five deadlifts once a week so it's it's very low deadlift training and so uh like when you're moving on to something else essentially like you're you're you should be pretty robust against squatting induced stress because you've been doing a lot of hard squats and you just don't do that many hard deadlifts and so i i think that uh people kind of move on to other programs from a starting point of being able to tolerate more squat training than deadlift training and then they basically think that that's just like an inherent state of things like you know, my experience has always been that I can do more squat training than deadlift training. Therefore, deadlifts are inherently more fatiguing. Whereas, you know, in an alternate universe where those ratios were reversed, you know, maybe if you're pulling heavy three times a week and only doing one set of five squats once a week, you know, people might believe otherwise. Like squats are inherently more fatiguing. If I try to ramp up my squat volume, shit goes to hell, but I can handle way more deadlifting. Like I, I, don't think that that would be completely implausible. Um, you know, and people who uh, who get into, like, powerlifting, bodybuilding, whatever, from a sports background, there aren't that many, like, high school sports teams that are doing a bunch of heavy deadlifts either. Like, they're generally doing a fair amount of squats, and then the, the pulling is mostly power cleans, uh, which, again, is, isn't going to toughen up your posterior chain to the same degree that heavy deadlifts will. So I, I think that there might also be a... Uh, an element of path dependency where, you know, people basically always train deadlifts with lower volume. Therefore, it takes less total volume to fatigue them, uh, but not not to, not due to like an inherent characteristic of the exercise itself. You know, th- they've just done less of it. So they're less uh, less robust against stress that it induces. Um, so anyway, those are my general thoughts. I think maybe a combination of those things contribute maybe i'm completely off base but those uh those are my hot takes on the subject all right good stuff so my next question is from justin kirk and this question i believe was actually posted a really long time ago and we just like didn't get to it but i think it's become a little bit more timely uh so justin asked Do either of you two know uh, of any available evidence on the altitude masks that people use in the gym? So you remember, I 
it's probably like two years ago that those were were really making the rounds but you know people were wearing the altitude masks and the whole idea was that they simulate altitude you wear them when you're training and you look like bane um but uh but but the the questioner uh the the listener who asked this question says it seems like if you're not living at altitude those adaptations that you might get from the mask would would probably fade so let me start by saying this as someone who enjoys physiology and exercise physiology altitude altitude exposure is pretty awesome like it is a cool thing so when you're at altitude the partial pressure of oxygen is lower and you know, a lot of things change at altitude, but probably the the hallmark adaptation, the thing that people talk most frequently about is when you're at altitude for a while, we adapt by increasing EPO levels, which increases red blood cell content and ultimately enhances the oxygen carrying capacity of blood. Now, here's the catch. Uh, I think you can make a really good argument that the best option when it comes to leveraging altitude exposure for training purposes, I think the best option is living high. So living at altitude, spending most of your day and evening at altitude, but actually training at a lower altitude. So so that's a common thing that a lot of endurance athletes do. And these adaptations associated with uh, altitude exposure are most directly relevant to endurance type exercise. But a lot of people that do high level endurance exercise, they will, you know, when they're doing their, their main like training leading into competition, they'll stay up high on a mountain and like sleep there and generally live up there and then drive down, do their training and then go back up to their, you know, their cottage up there. And what's really nice about that, that option of living high and training low is you can generally exist at altitude and and get some of those adaptations throughout the day of having that low partial pressure of oxygen. But, you know, training at altitude can be difficult because, you know, the fact that during that early adaptation process, it's kind of hard to get the oxygen where you're trying to get it that could theoretically impair your training volume. So it's a nice little mix of both. And there, you know, there's some papers arguing about how you should balance that altitude exposure and whether you should train at altitude or train down low. But, but I I think you can make a strong case that a pretty ideal scenario is altitude exposure most of the day and then training at a more, uh, you know, closer to sea level. Now, when we talk about these elevation masks, um, if we accept the premise that they work, which I don't, but if we do accept that premise, it's kind of the worst of both worlds, right? Because you're not wearing your altitude mask 23 hours a day and then saying, all right, I'm going to pop this off. I mean, maybe you're not. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I'm going to you know, lose the mask and go to my workout for the day. It's inverted. It's basically, I'm going to spend 23 hours a day doing my thing with my face fully unmasked and then I'm going to put it on for an hour and go to the gym and that that's really not an ideal scenario even if this was replicating altitude but you know there there is published you know exercise science literature on um these altitude simulating masks and there's just there's just no benefit well, I, I wouldn't even call them altitude simulating masks masks that because they are marketed as altitude yeah because i mean really that's the rub they don't they They don't don't simulate altitude no uh, altitude the the partial pressure 
of the air you breathe through a mask is literally the same partial pressure as the air outside the mask. Like it's, it's not, it's not doing altitude shit. It's not. And, and so there have been some studies looking at some, you know, different training protocols with or without these masks, no benefits for VO two max peak power output or a variety of other aerobic and anaerobic outcomes. Generally, here's a, something that did change. Uh, RPE, perceived exertion, was generally increased by about two points at the same workload. So when you're doing work that would typically be an RPE, you know, six out of 10, throw on the mask, congratulations. Now it's an eight out of 10, but you're not performing any better. Like, so it just made exercise suck and did not enhance adaptations. Um, Now I have seen people making small, like very specific arguments for like, well, Maybe it has a training effect on the muscles involved with ventilation. Um, Maybe, but it it takes a very specific scenario for that to really impact training. Like no one's, there are very few people for which ventilatory uh, muscles are their limiting factor for, for exercise performance. Yeah. Like that, that could be a factor for like ultra endurance athletes. Uh, You know, you're, breathing pretty hard for hours and hours and hours ventilatory muscles can fatigue uh it's it's actually like a somewhat important thing for competitive swimmers um just because like there is the pressure of the water pushing in on your rib cage so it takes more effort for your rib cage to expand when you're trying to breathe uh so so ventilatory muscle fatigue can actually be a problem for a non-negligible amount of uh, of competitive swimmers. And the other situation, and, and here's really the irony, uh, the masks don't simulate altitude, but they may not be terrible for training when you're planning on doing something at altitude. Um, so, you know, if you're planning on hiking a relatively high mountain, uh, respirat- or, uh, uh, ventilatory muscle fatigue and even sometimes ventilatory muscle strains can occur... Um, basically when you're, when you're operating at quite high altitudes, like we're we're not talking like 6,000 meters, we're talking like 10,000 meters plus, uh, you you can actually deal with like pretty significant ventilatory muscle fatigue in situations like that. Uh, so even though the altitude mask doesn't simulate altitude, it may not be a terrible thing to like prepare your ventilatory muscles for altitude, um, for very high altitude. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, if you're, if you're not mountaineering, that's yeah. not relevant to you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like th- those are situations where, you know, not just so-called altitude masks, but just like ventilatory muscle training in general could be beneficial. And I'll note, you don't have to buy a mask. You can literally just breathe through a straw. Like that's, that's how <laughs> ventilatory muscle training is generally done. Uh, and just like, forcefully breathing through smaller and smaller straws is uh is generally how it's done but you know you can buy a mask if you want to yeah but you know for for most listeners who maybe are you know do a five or a 10k now and then or mostly lift weights you know the the ventilatory or the um i don't even know what to call them the masks that purport to simulate altitude probably not an important part of your toolkit uh, but this, like, like I said, this question has become, if we kind of go a little bit on a tangent, a little bit more relevant because obviously a lot of gyms across the world now require that you wear some type of mask. 
And a lot of people have been asking questions or speculating about how that might impact their ability to train, right? So these are very different from a, a mask that is basically <laughs> designed to make it harder to breathe. Like that's the opposite of what they're trying to do. But uh, there is some published research looking at exercise performed when wearing the types of masks that that you might potentially wear to, to minimize, uh, you know, COVID risk. And so there was a, a crossover study with 12 healthy males and they had three different conditions. So it was either wearing like a pretty heavy duty N95, like that's a serious mask or wearing a surgical mask or wearing no mask. And an important thing to keep in mind is in this study, like when we, when we measure ventilatory gases in an exercise science lab, we also have to put on a mask to capture those gases. So if anything, this study is probably overestimating that mask effect because we're talking about a mask on top of a mask there. So they're breathing through the mask and into the ventilatory mask that's capturing those gases, uh, which probably wouldn't be particularly fun, but you look perplexed. I, I'm just I'm just trying to picture that in my mind. They have like a how, picture of it in the study. Well, I'm gonna go look at that. Yeah. So um, anyway, looking at the results here, uh, the N95 mask, you know, just taking a very uh, cursory glance at the results, the N95 mask did uh, result in lower maximal power um, outcomes during uh, maximal VO2 max testing. Also, a lower VO2 max value was achieved during those tests compared to no mask. And the, the results kind of went in order. So like, you know, in terms of max power achieved and VO2 max achieved, no mask was ideal. And then the surgical mask was a little bit worse than no mask. And then the N95 was worse than the surgical mask. Um, however, uh, there, there was a, a little bit of an exchange. There was a letter to the editor written uh, in response to this article and, uh, you know, some scientists looked over the results and they're like, you know, I'm, I think you guys might be discounting, uh, just the, the impact of overall discomfort and perceived exertion here, because in, in the conditions where they were wearing the surgical mask and even more so when they were wearing the N95, it wasn't just that they achieved lower power output and lower VO2 max, but it was that it looked like they were just terminating the maximal test a little bit earlier. So they, they weren't achieving the same like blood lactate levels. Some of those indicators of a maximal effort didn't look quite as pronounced in those masked conditions. And in this study, to, to the author's credit, they did look at a variety of different discomfort-related subjective assessments. And when, when they looked at the overall discomfort score, uh, with no mask, it was 2.8 out of 10. With the surgical mask, it was 5.2 out of 10. And then with the with the N95, it was actually 7 out of 10 for discomfort. And so the authors of this letter to the editor basically suggest, you know, the, the, you know it's a nice study, good findings, but we we do wonder how much that general discomfort caused these participants to prematurely terminate their VO2 max test. Uh, which is why we're seeing lower power output and lower uh, maximal VO2 achieved. So it when, when it comes to actually turning this into practical uh, application takeaways, um, 
the one thing is that for, for people who don't have any ventilation related uh, pathologies or medical conditions, it doesn't look like, like there's much to worry about when it comes to mask wearing during exercise. And especially like, you know, most people, their typical exercise is not a maximal VO2 test with, with, a, with a second mask on top of their mask. Um, but there, there does seem to be, uh, for, for many people, a notable um, effect in terms of discomfort. So you might find that you're generally less comfortable with a mask when training. You might find that your RPE is a little bit higher. And of course, as the results of that study actually show, it's probably going to vary based on the actual mask you're wearing. So N95 versus surgical mask versus a cloth mask, there's probably a great deal of variation there. Uh, and it probably also depends on the exer exercise modality and intensity that you're training with. Um, so like I said, now, if, if you've got uh, asthma or an actual medical condition that does impact ventilation, um, it might be worth a, a closer look. And, you know, I'm not an expert on that. So I'm going to leave that like I'm not going to touch it. But but for healthy people that don't have any issues with uh, with ventilation and breathing, these these results seem to indicate you know, for the type of training most of our listeners do, probably not a huge deal outside of that discomfort effect. So we've got another question for Greg here uh, by Land Ho. The question is, a lot of bodybuilders use nicotine gum or other nicotine products during a contest prep to suppress appetite and increase energy. Have you guys ever used these products and what are the benefits and risks of using nicotine products in this way? <laughs> have I ever used nicotine products? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, I'm using a nicotine product right now. Uh, I chew a fair amount of nicotine gum and have for, uh, for a decent bit. Um, and, uh, if you were to ask me why it's for a couple reasons, uh, one, sometimes I don't sleep much and it, uh, it helps keep me going through the day. Uh, when I do sleep, um, I still use it cause it helps me focus better and, uh, just generally makes me feel good. I also use a lot of caffeine. I'm a fan of uppers. That's my vice. Fucking sue me. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so nicotine and, uh, how that might, um, you know, j just affect the things that people might be interested in, you know, as it comes to lifting, uh, dieting, etc. So nicotine is an appetite suppressant. Um, the you know the, the drawback to that is uh, one of the things that's like pretty commonly seen when uh, smokers quit smoking is they uh, often gain quite a bit of weight because you're you're basically so uh, you you do habituate to the appetite suppressing effects of nicotine. And then when you remove it, you will then have a greater appetite and, and a desire to eat more. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're planning on using it for appetite suppression, um, anticipate using that as kind of like a short-term crutch. So if you were dieting and you wanted to use nicotine as an appetite suppressant, I'd recommend probably only using that for like the last maybe week or two of your cut. Because uh, if, if you're planning like a four-month cut and you're a month into it and you're already using nicotine as an appetite suppressant, by the time you're actually getting quite lean, that nicotine's not doing shit for you anymore. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, 
anyway, yeah, if you're going to use it as an appetite suppressant, um, plan on the front end for that to be like a short term thing and, and make sure you're using it strategically. Uh, cause if you use it a fair amount all the time, it ceases to be an appetite suppressant. It basically just keeps your appetite from being elevated. Um, so that's the first thing. Second, uh, this question didn't ask about exercise, but you know, that might be worth touching on just in general. Uh, there was a systematic review by Johnson and colleagues, uh, title was nicotine effects on exercise performance and physiological responses in nicotine naive individuals, a systematic review. Uh, and so it essentially found that there are some plausible mechanisms by which one might assume nicotine would be beneficial for exercise performance. Uh, but basically all of the actual, like, placebo-controlled research to this point finds that it doesn't really do anything. Uh, at least if it, if, if it does have an effect, uh, it's not large enough to be reliably detectable. Um, so, I, I mean, like, again, this is just me personally. This, this is my experience with nicotine. Um, I find that it, it might, uh, kind of sort of help improve motivation and maybe decrease perceived effort to some degree, um, which is is largely one of the things that caffeine helps with as well. Uh, caffeine, on the other hand, is actually a direct ergogenic. Like, it, it does um, significantly increase strength and power performance. Nicotine doesn't seem to. Um, I personally use both caffeine and nicotine before workouts. Again, I like uppers, sue me. Uh, but yeah, like the, as far as like exercise stuff goes, caffeine and nicotine do similar stuff, but except nicotine isn't an ergogenic and caffeine is. And as far as like reducing perceived exertion goes, caffeine's better at that than nicotine. Uh, so, you know, it, unless you just have like an extreme caffeine tolerance, if caffeine still does anything for you, uh, caffeine's probably a better pre-workout stimulant than nicotine is, uh, on balance. Um, and this, uh, this question also asked about risks. So my understanding is that, uh, well, so first off, there's not just a ton of research on, uh, non-tobacco. Well, in, in these days, there's also some on vaping, uh, but most of the research looking at, at the health risks associated with nicotine um, are specifically looking at tobacco products. And there's obviously a ton of stuff in tobacco products other than just nicotine. Uh, and there's also now some research on vaping. But, you know, the, the potential health risks associated with vaping seem to be largely related to either like additives that find their way into the into the vape liquid uh contaminants or just risks associated with kind of the you know inhaling hot gas that has recently been combusted um obviously that's not in play if you're just chewing gum so uh yeah i i haven't actually been able to round up that much uh, like long-term safety data on just like nicotine itself, either in like a gum form or patch form or something like that, lozenges, uh, like basically everything I've seen 
seems to say like it's a heck of a lot better than smoking and then the next question is like yeah but you know what is it like by itself uh and, and there doesn't seem to be that much research out there what i've seen seems to suggest that it's uh its safety profile is not that dissimilar to pretty much any other stimulant um like if you have high blood pressure it's a stimulant it's going to exacerbate high blood pressure um if you have if you have a heart condition uh that might be exacerbated by coronary hypertension definitely not a good idea to use pretty much any stimulant um yeah otherwise like it, it basically just seems to be a stimulant and and have a safety profile comparable to other stimulants um so anyway yeah if uh i think my general recommendation is if you don't need to use stimulants uh or like <laughs> you don't just want to use them because you like how they make you feel which is the camp I'm in, uh, you're probably better off not using stimulants if you can help it. Uh, and if you're going to use one, uh, caffeine seems to probably be your best choice, uh, especially for exercise stuff because it is an ergogenic, whereas nicotine is not. Um, and also you can consume caffeine in the form of coffee, which has a lot of, of health-promoting effects independent of the caffeine there's there's a lot of good stuff in coffee um so yeah the that's uh the, those are my general thoughts on nicotine the other thing that i that i would add i suppose um is if you're if you're working relatively late into the night uh and you do need stimulants to help keep you awake and help keep you focused in a situation like that uh nicotine might be I'm not going to say advisable because that might get me sued. Uh, it's worth, I suppose, considering. Uh, so nicotine has a considerably shorter half-life than caffeine does. Uh, so if I'm, you know, if I'm finishing up work right before I'm about to get ready for bed, uh, and I've, you know, and I most recently put in a piece of nicotine gum like an hour and a half, two hours prior to getting in bed. I find that it doesn't really affect my ability to fall asleep, stay asleep, wake up feeling refreshed. Whereas, you know, if if I used my last relatively large dose of caffeine two hours before I was getting in bed, I'd be fucked. That would be a shitty night of sleep. Um, so yeah, that, that's another reason that I use nicotine. Um, I, I try to basically stop using all stimulants, uh, or at least like severely cut back on them once my workday is done. Um, but you know, if my workday is a budding when I'm about to go to sleep, nicotine seems to, to be more conducive to, or not more conducive, less anti-conducive to sleep, uh, than caffeine is just because you're, you're dealing with a much shorter half-life. Uh, so yeah, th those are my, general thoughts about and experiences with nicotine yeah I've, we've talked about this before outside of the show uh i've never tried nicotine um i have a very addictive personality i'm already addicted to caffeine and i just feel like why add more to the mix you know like <laughs> like how you mentioned like if you don't absolutely need it probably best not to even venture into it like that's kind of where i'm at is like caffeine's fine i like coffee and if I start using it, I'm going to start using it a lot. I just know how yeah. I'm wired. 
Um, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Like wh- one of the questions I'm asked the most is like, well, like, are you afraid you're going to get addicted? And it's like, I'm not afraid of it. Cause I definitely am addicted. Yeah. Like yeah. Th- th- that is 100% the case. I'm also very addicted to caffeine. Another thing that I'll, that I'll say, and, and this is like purely anecdotal, um, if uh so if if i do take like a true weekend day um i'll generally try to like push as late into the day as possible without using stimulants just you know for for uh for kind of like a tolerance break and also (laughs) just kind of to see how far gone i am (laughs) Um, and one of the things one of the things that's that's very very apparent to me uh, is like I need caffeine first thing upon waking, no matter how much I slept the night before. If I don't, within about two hours of waking up, I'm going to find myself with a splitting headache. Um, like, and so, like, you know, two options. If I say popped in a piece of nicotine gum right when I woke up and didn't consume caffeine, I'd still be in a very bad spot. Like, without the caffeine, I get the headaches, I get withdrawal symptoms, not good. Uh, if I, if I consume caffeine when I first wake up, um, I don't feel the need to consume nicotine. Like I'll, I, I think I feel a little bit less mentally sharp, but I don't really seem to experience any notable withdrawal symptoms. Um, so yeah, like it, it helps me focus and I like how it makes me feel, but I, I would say on like a relative level of addictiveness, like I, I, at least like physiologically i'm considerably more addicted to caffeine than nicotine but i'm definitely addicted to both (laughs) yeah i think mentally for me one of the things that makes my caffeine addiction easier to manage is just the fact that there's not like any kind of stigma surrounding it like i was brainwashed as a child by dare it's like dude nicotine that's bad news but like if you talk about like oh, I'm addicted to caffeine. People are like, yeah, me too. Check out my funny t-shirt about it. You know, <laughs> it's like a, a completely different thing, uh, which, which is not uh, necessarily a logical way to view it. But like for me, I'm just like, yeah, if I have to choose one crippling addiction, I feel like caffeine's the most palatable. Um, That's just not a social pressure I feel. Yeah. Like when, when people find out, like I can see it in their eyes. And I'm uh, not saying there's anything wrong with it, by no, the way. No, I, I wasn't interpreting yeah. it that way. Like, but, but I can tell when some people find out, like some people judge me for it. I just don't care. Yeah. No, it, it's not that I would ever judge somebody for it. It's that I'm uncomfortable with me knowing I'm addicted to a thing that isn't caffeine. Yeah. And it's completely arbitrary. I, I admit it's, it's not a logical uh, perspective, but like such as the nature of brainwashing dude change of subject since you mentioned dare uh so previously on the podcast uh i've mentioned that one of my favorite podcasts is called you're wrong about yeah strongly recommend it very entertaining uh they had uh an episode on dare and how uh completely ineffective it is i strongly recommend people check it out it's a very good episode uh but one of the things that they mentioned um which I guess I hadn't really thought about because it's one of those things that like I grew up with dare for people outside the U S that don't know what dare is. It stands for drug abuse resistance education. Uh, and basically like someone would come into the school, generally a cop, like it was a cop for us. I, I think that's just kind of how, how it worked. Um, 
And, you know, they basically say, like, look, if you do drugs, uh, you're going to fucking die. I personally will arrest you and send you to prison forever. (laughs) Um, All of your teeth are going to fall out. Like, everyone who has ever done any drug uh, goes to prison for 20 years and dies on the street. Like, it it, it was like a 100% fear-based thing with a slight educational component about, like, the negative effects of every drug in existence. But the thing is, uh, it, it backfired really badly. And like one of the reasons it backfired is basically you have a cop going into the school and saying like, Hey, uh, here are all of the drugs that are out there that you're, you know, nothing about these drugs. Those weren't ideas floating around in your head. I'm just going to inform you about every street drug in existence so if you're the type of person who who might get curious about drugs, I am going to satisfy that curiosity and let you know what is out there that you might want to experiment with. Uh, and two, you know, when I'm telling you how drug dealers might approach you uh, and might solicit you to buy drugs, I am simultaneously telling you where you might be able to find drug dealers and how they might interact with you. If you're the type of person who wants to feel out like, oh, is this person a drug dealer? Can I ask them to buy drugs or like, you know, is this a fucking cop or someone who's going to snitch on me? Uh, and so like it, it's basically it's it's an educational program that is essentially informing people what drugs are out there and how to obtain them uh, yeah. <laughs> to some degree. It, it's it's a, a brochure and then a script for like, <laughs> yeah. OK, here's, here's how you get it. And then also like it uh, it, it would like shake people's confidence in authority figures like surrounding the topic of drugs because it was just like 100% a fear campaign. It's like, uh, you know, we, we joke about the dangers of marijuana use, but like, you know, if we were a dare officer, all of the things we've said about marijuana on this podcast, we probably would be saying to like fifth graders completely unironically. Uh, and so, you know, you plant those ideas in kids' heads And then, you know, they get to middle school and some people start doing drugs and then they realize like, wait a second, like that's still my buddy. They haven't changed that much. I feel like officer so-and-so lied to me. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, that it it would basically just like backfire from that perspective because, you know, once people learn that shit's not as scary as, as they were told, they're just like, ah, maybe it's not that bad at all. Maybe I should try some stuff. And they just told me what I should try and where I can get it. Uh, so yeah. anyway, our, our dare officer was such a was such a heavy chain smoker <laughs> that um, like they would administer the education if memory serves largely in like an assembly format. Mm-hmm. Like the whole school gets in the gymnasium, and then he kind of grabs the podium and, and kind of warns us about the dangers of tobacco and other things. And dude, he'd be like directly outside the gymnasium with like <laughs> with like three cigarettes in his mouth at once just to try to get him through the 45 minute presentation. Oh, your, your D.A.R.E. program covered tobacco? Oh, yeah, I think so. Whoa. So ours. Um, so well, you were in North Carolina. Yeah, like I grew up in North Carolina. Uh, tobacco Road. Yeah, we, we were we were 30 minutes down the road from the second largest cigarette producer in the world (laughs) rj reynolds represent baby um but yeah like dude so our our said uh 
Like they were warning us against the dangers of drugs and tobacco. Like tobacco was appended as something that's like not really a drug. Um, and, and the messaging was basically just like, uh, alcohol, that'll fucking kill you. Weed, that'll fucking kill you. Cocaine, that'll fucking kill you. Cigarettes, yeah, not great. If you use them, use them responsibly. Like yeah. that. <laughs> so I, I think they may have, uh, have they may have geographically tailored the uh the cigarette portion of dare <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we we were in ohio so we didn't have any of that lobbying going on at the local level um okay so moving on i've got a question here i got two questions actually about cortisol so um cortisol comes up a lot um you know people are very interested in it because there's a lot of people talking about how it affects, you know, uh, muscle breakdown and fat storage. So two questions here. Number one, is there an actual evidence-based connection between cortisol and fat storage, especially belly fat, or is this just kind of uh, a myth? Question number two, what's the state of research on cortisol's actual impact on fat accumulation? Seems like a lot of internet outlets uh, are telling us that cortisol causes belly fat but digging deeper on it, I couldn't really find much evidence. So cortisol, not a myth. It is a hormone. It exists. Um, and there's a good side and a bad side of cortisol. So the good side of cortisol is that we need it. Uh, it plays a really important role in the acute stress response. Uh, it helps mobilize energy substrates when we've got that nice fight or flight response. Uh, cortisol has important functions in the body. And if you didn't have cortisol, you'd be in bad shape. That'd be a problem. Uh, the bad side of cortisol is that too much can be bad, especially in a chronic, uh, perspective. So, uh, cortisol's effects, it is anabolic in the liver, but has catabolic effects elsewhere, including skeletal muscle. And it also can have some divergent effects on adipose tissue. So in some instances, it can cause lipolysis. In other instances, it can cause lipogenesis. But, you know, a really easy way to look at the effects of cortisol is in an extreme example. And, and I think probably the, the, the most extreme example that's commonly known would be Cushing syndrome. So this is uh, a medical condition in which you have chronically very high cortisol levels. And uh, it does present uh, clinically with, with a particular pattern of body composition characteristics. So an individual with Cushing syndrome will often present with uh, fairly thin extremities. Um, and a lot of that is because, you know, like I said, generally catabolic outside of the liver. So uh, it can be difficult to, to put on muscle mass in the extremities with chronically, you know, pathological or, you know, uh, chronically high cortisol that is pathological in nature and outside of the typical reference range. Now, uh, individuals with Cushing syndrome will also typically present medically with uh, greater adiposity in the face, the neck, and the trunk. And a lot of times there will be abdominal obesity present along with uh, insulin resistance, high blood pressure, and dyslipidemia. So Cushing syndrome uh, is kind of a glimpse at what happens when there is really high, chronically elevated levels of cortisol. And it's kind of uh, an exaggerated look at mechanistically what does cortisol do in terms of body fat uh, accumulation and effects on skeletal muscle mass. So 
in terms of what cortisol does, that's pretty straightforward. And I think Cushing syndrome gives us a, a, a pretty straightforward glimpse into that. Uh, but it's really important to recognize that that is a very extreme example. So when people talk about cortisol in the fitness space, you know, they'll talk about the small fluctuations within the normal range that occur in response to a heavy training bout or an isolated instance of, you know, kind of like panic or, you know, psychological stressors. And in the fitness space, the practical impact of cortisol, I think it's blown out of proportion because the acute fluctuations that occur within typical ranges really are not a big deal. Um, so if you've got acute cortisol elevations that are related to exercise or psychological stressors, there's no action needed. That's normal ups and downs. And there's also a diurnal variation where throughout the day we'll see cortisol values go up and go down. So in the overwhelming huge proportion of instances, there's just absolutely no action needed when it comes to your cortisol levels. Now, if you have chronically high cortisol levels due to pretty severe and pretty constant stress, then there probably is some action needed, but you're not intervening on the cortisol. You're, you're intervening on the, the source of the stressor. You know, So if you are just chronically living in a state approximating terror, you do want... <laughs> <laughs> you do want to act upon that, but it's it's about stress management or, or as much as it's feasible, removing those stressors from your life. Um, so having chronically high cortisol due to very severe constant stress is a bad thing, but you want to intervene on the actual stress, not the cortisol. It's not like, oh, I'm still just like living, you know, in a state of terror all day, every day. But good thing I got this cortisol supplement. Like that that's not the order of operations there. Uh, and then finally, if you have chronically high or low cortisol levels that are outside of the typical range due to a medical condition, again, that's something that you will want to intervene on, but it's not by getting like a cortisol supplement. You got to get in touch with an endocrinologist. There are medical conditions that cause uh, you know, fluctuations in cortisol that are outside of the typical reference range, either uh, suppression of cortisol or extreme elevation of cortisol. And those should not be ignored. Uh, they should, you know, you should seek help with those types of uh, clinical conditions, but you're getting that from a doctor and an endocrinologist, not uh, a fitness website, right? So uh, the short version is cortisol absolutely has the potential to very meaningfully impact body composition, fat storage, uh, muscle tissue accretion. However, actually intervening upon that or doing anything about it is pretty much outside of the realm of fitness. The, the stuff we can actually, uh, you know, the little fluctuations day to day that we impact with our activities, there's really no action needed there. But if we're talking about really chronic psychological stress, we need to work on the actual stressor and stress management strategies, not the cortisol level. And again, if, if you've got something that's influencing uh, the actual production of cortisol, either increasing or decreasing, that's the type of thing you want to speak to a doctor about. Okay, uh, question for Greg. This is by Unnamed Player on Reddit. And the question is, I've noticed that barbell medicine has recently... Uh, been talking a lot about the minimalist warm up. So the idea is that people are wasting too much time with 
activation and mobility and so on before their workouts and that they should pretty much keep it simple. So what are your general feelings on this and the concept of just using a barbell to warm up for lifting? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fine uh, if you can do it, you know, like if if that's something that works well for you, go for it. So I, I do think I, I do think that there are probably a fair amount of people who do too much warm up stuff uh, in you know, like it's not necessarily bad to do a bunch of warm up stuff, but you you do reach a point of diminishing returns. Like it it is possible to do so much that you know by, by the end of your very elaborate warm up routine, you're kind of wasting your time. You're doing thirty minutes of warm up drills when you could have gotten away with ten. Um, so you know, like that that is certainly something that's possible. Um, so I, I think that there are a couple things to keep in mind. One is just kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, if you spend a little bit too much time warming up, doing activation drills, doing mobility work, etc., what's it going to cost you? Um, what it could theoretically cost you is if you're going to the gym on a relatively tight schedule. You know, let's say you have an hour to work out and you're doing 30 minutes of warm-up, activation, mobility work, etc., uh, you basically just cut in half the time that you can spend actually training. So, like, there is a real cost there, whereas if you could get away with a 5-10 minute warm-up, you can uh, come relatively close to doubling the effective amount of time you have to work out. So that, that could be pretty meaningful. Uh, if you're someone who has a more open schedule and... You know, your your the actual lifting part of your workout is going to take an hour, and you're gonna have that hour, and it's basically just like, do I spend an hour and ten minutes in the gym with ten minutes of warm up and an hour of lifting, or an hour and a half in the gym with thirty minutes of warm up and an hour of lifting? Uh, you know, and you have that time, and that's time you don't mind spending. Then you know, there there's essentially no cost to doing a lot of warm ups, and so you know, in that case, who cares? Like if you like doing it, if it makes you feel good, go for it. Um, so I, I think in a general sense, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a terrible idea to see if you can get away with doing, with spending less time warming up and preparing to train, uh, you know, just because that is kind of perpetual time savings. If, if you find out you can shorten your warm up by 10, 15, 20 minutes. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't think that. I don't think you should necessarily approach it with a goal of like, you know, the the least amount of warm-ups I can do and still have a somewhat adequate workout is the appropriate and correct amount of warming up to do. Like, I think that some people can take minimalism too far to where it becomes an end unto itself. Uh, and the way I see it, like the the purpose of warming up is to prepare yourself for the workout to come. And so if you're doing more than you need to to prepare yourself for the workout to come, eh, yeah, you're probably wasting a little bit of time. If you're doing less than you need to to prepare yourself for the workout and you're, you know, maybe elevating your risk to some degree because you're not just adequately warming up the muscles you're about to train. Uh, you know, maybe you do have some mobility stuff that you do need to work on to get into the to the positions you need to get into for the exercises you're going to do. You know, then that is that is costing you something. Like it, it may be hindering your performance. It may be increasing your your risk of injury to some degree. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily push for 
the shortest, most minimalistic, most abbreviated warm-up possible for its own sake, I think the basic process is, is just ask yourself, like, hey, you know, what's the first thing I'm going to do when I go to the gym and start warming up? Uh, like, does that benefit me? You know, and, and you can troubleshoot it, you know, like each little step in your warm-up, just leave it out one workout and see how your workout goes. Do you still feel fine? Okay, maybe you can leave it out. Okay, now now maybe you've gone from five things in your warm-up to four things. Okay, kick another thing out. Do you still feel fine? Does you, does your workout still go well? Cool, you can, you can leave that thing out. Okay, now you're down to three things in your warm-up. Okay, now you boot another thing out. How does your workout feel? Hmm, not quite as good. Okay, maybe leave that thing in and try booting out one of the other three things that are left. You know, basically just use that troubleshooting process. Uh, and, and once you find a spot where you are doing maybe fewer warm-ups than you were before, but you're still feeling just as good, you know, that's great. You're still performing just as well, and you're saving a little bit of time. Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend, <laughs> you know, going from a lot of warm-up stuff to just warming up with the bar, uh, you know, basically going from 100 to zero just just for its own sake. Um, you know, be, because again, uh, just, just based on the cost benefit analysis, like I, I think the, the, the cost of warming up less than you could benefit from is probably greater than the cost of, you know, wasting five or 10 minutes of warming up a little bit too much. Uh, but yeah, th those are, those are my general thoughts. Just, just kind of some things to keep in mind as you approach this subject. Good stuff. I totally agree. Um, okay, we've got one more question for today's episode, um, and, and this one is for me. It's by Paul, and this is a good one um, because it, it's a, a good excuse to talk about the general chaos associated with bodybuilding. <laughs> uh, so Paul asks, are there any expected anomalies in natural bodybuilders' blood tests, um, you know, especially during high volume overreaching phases or during contest prep dieting? Are we seeing any impacts on things like red blood cells, white blood cells, testosterone, iron, et cetera? Um, and so first of all, a really important thing for, for all listeners, even if they're not bodybuilders, is that lifters in general do tend to have slightly different uh, blood profiles than people who don't lift, right? So uh, it's not uncommon to see elevated creatinine in lifters, especially those who eat a lot of meat and take a lot of creatine and have a bunch of muscle mass. And so that ties into our recent conversation about uh, the estimated glomerular filtration rate. Stumbled over it a little bit. Still but, pretty uh, smooth. But yeah, GFR, we, we talked about how that's in many cases a creatine-based estimate or creatinine-based estimate. And uh, yeah, so that can be very much skewed uh, in lifters. And also it can fluctuate a decent amount from day to day. Uh, lifters, we will also see elevated uh, creatine kinase. And there are some studies where, you know, they, they do, you know, heavy eccentric training. Uh, and yeah, if you didn't know that individual had done heavy eccentric training and you looked at their creatinine or their creatine kinase levels, you'd be panicked and you should be <laughs> like, because if there's not training there, there's a major medical condition occurring or that recently occurred. Yeah. Like it's not good. Um, yeah, if isn't it generally like you only see those numbers if either someone just exercised really hard 
or has recently had a heart attack. Usually. And I, I yeah. think there are some cancers that can also <laughs> elevate creatine kinase if memory serves, but definitely the heart attack and, and heavy intense exercise. So yeah, if you just like roll into a blood test with no context and you know, you just did a really heavy workout the night before your creatine kinase is going to get some attention. Uh, other things we often see elevated in lifters, and it's really easy to find these because just look at any paper on acute muscle damage and recovery and say, what were the outcome measures, right? <laughs> so like uh, lactate dehydrogenase, myoglobin, blood urea nitrogen can be elevated, liver enzymes can be elevated. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff from just lifting alone that, that can be elevated. Um, when it comes to overreaching, you know, a lot of the early overreaching and overtraining papers would look at the cortisol to testosterone ratio. Uh, I'm certainly not indicating that that's a driver of overreaching overtraining or even a perfect diagnostic test, but it is a metric that does when, when you really push somebody and intentionally try to, to make them overreach or overtrain, it's not uncommon to see a higher ratio of cortisol to testosterone. Now, when it comes to... It's also not uncommon to see uh, elevated levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Yeah. Uh, so like uh, interleukin-6, interleukin-1-beta, and tumor necrosis factor alpha are are the three that kind of are most reliably elevated. Uh, those, I don't think, generally show up on just kind of like baseline drug tests uh, or, or blood tests, I mean. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, like those those might be things that if those are things you're interested in, you'd probably have to request them special. Yeah, and then you could probably add C-reactive protein to that list as well. Yeah, that's another one that comes up a lot. Now, when it comes to bodybuilders uh, prepping, there's even more chaos associated with that. So uh, we recently, just this year, published a case study. Uh, Brad Schoenfeld was a lead author. Uh, and there was a bunch of, a, a bunch of my buddies on the paper, me and Tinsley and, uh, Campbell and a whole bunch of others. I don't, don't want to list everybody. I'll leave people off. Cody Hahn was on it. Who's one of our stronger by science coaches. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, a really nice group of people to work with, but we did look at some, uh, some blood test outcomes and saw, you know, the pretty common stuff. We saw, uh, low testosterone, low thyroid hormone, uh, white blood cells did drop at a certain point in prep. So seeing those different blood ab abnormalities, especially when it comes to the sex hormones and thyroid hormone, uh, pretty common in prep. And there's been a, a decent amount of research on this from the, uh, the crew over at the university of Yavascula. So, uh, Utah, uh, Yuha Homi, Yuha Atienen, um, yeah, their whole group, really fun group. I love them. I visited the university a couple years ago and dude, it's just folks that love bodybuilding and are damn good at science. Like everybody you talk to walking down the hallways is just freaking smart. And they want to talk to you about like Arnold Schwarzenegger and stuff. It, it really is a, a wonderful place. So they, they do a lot of great work on bodybuilding. And in the last few years, they've published stuff looking at some of these effects of, you know, what changes during prep beyond the, beyond the basic stuff, beyond, you know, strength and body composition. So uh, they did a study uh, in female competitors uh, looking, they did look at body comp, but they also looked at some hormones and they found that over the course of prep, they saw reductions in leptin, uh, T3, thyroid hormone, testosterone, estradiol. 
uh, and of course, uh, increased incidence of menstrual cycle irregularities, which is not the least bit surprising. But the good news was that stuff generally reverted in the three to four months following competition. Uh, they did another study in a similar population, female physique athletes, and they looked at a variety of different um, biomarkers related to inflammation and the immune, sy- the immune system. And you can, I'll put the link in the show notes. You can look at all the specific biomarkers they looked at. It's quite an involved study, but generally speaking, over the course of PrEP, they saw attenuated markers of systemic inflammation, but also markers indicating some immunosuppression. So, you know, looking through a a particular blood test, if you're looking at things related to inflammation or immunosuppression, some of those can be altered uh, over the course of contest PrEP. Um, they published another paper, probably with the same cohort, I would assume same number of participants, female physique athletes. And, uh, you know, they, they found beneficial changes in, in a number of, uh, biomarkers related to cardiometabolic health. So, um, what that tells us is basically whatever blood test you're looking at, if you've got a, a physique athlete who's in prep, whether the blood test is related to, the immune system, inflammation, cardiometabolic risk, uh, endocrine profile, uh, muscle damage, kidney function, liver function. There's going to be abnormalities in there, and you have to consider what which of these abnormalities is related to just being a person who lifts with a lot of muscle mass, what's related to their dietary intakes, what's related to the enormous caloric deficit and, and the low body fat. So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> probably probably grounds for like a completely separate certification there of like how to actually interpret a bodybuilder's blood tests when they're like deep into prep and i i do remember one funny anecdote uh, i had a buddy who was training a very 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 elite like ifbb olympia level bodybuilder and was going like rep for rep with them in the gym but my buddy was not an olympia level ifbb bodybuilder and, uh, so, so my buddy sent me a, a, some blood tests and he was like, Hey, my doctor's a little bit concerned. What do you think? And I was like, dude, this is just a disaster. Like you gotta take some plates off the bar, <laughs> like, but like everything, kidney function, liver, fu- and none of it was acutely concerning, but it was more just like, dude, like you're clearly not hanging in these <laughs> workouts. This is not a good thing. Like just for, for your well being. like, I'm not worried about your kidney or liver, but like a little bit worried about your, your general state of mind right now. How are you feeling? But, uh, yeah, his buddy's just like yeah, coasting through the off season <laughs> yeah. and he's like unironically approaching every workout as if it's like a battle in a protracted war. Yeah. And, and in that scenario, I actually think that's probably the right mindset. <laughs> um, now one other thing. So in the question that mentioned like iron specifically, but, on the nutrition side, a bodybuilder deep into prep, you're probably going to see, I would, I'm speculating here, but probably a number of maybe not nutrient deficiencies, but at least insufficiencies. I mean, when you're talking about a person who's training that hard, which can elevate losses of certain nutrients, uh, and you're also talking about latent prep, low calorie intake, often reduced diversity of food sources. A lot of times people are like, listen, <laughs> with my macros, I've got like four foods on the table, right? Uh, so it's very common to see people really whittle down the list of foods they eat and, and get 
to a pretty small list of foods. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a number of like subclinical insufficiencies for a bunch of different micronutrients, but I would probably not expect anything to be too pressing. And of course, we have to remember this is a short window in the individual's life, right? I mean, we're talking about hopefully a short period of time, and then they're going to recover and get back to a more typical dietary intake. But uh, for someone who, you know, is doing the, I compete spring and fall and spring and fall and spring and fall, then that that might be worth a a closer look. Okay, uh, to play us out, uh, this is something you sent me this morning. I I didn't tell you I was actually going to include this in the show, but... Uh, I'm flattered. Yeah, this is an interesting thing that you is, sent. For is, once, is, is is this why you wanted me to to come on as a special guest for this episode? Exactly. Yeah. For once, you sent me something that wasn't just mind-numbingly stupid. <laughs> um, so this was a very recent study by Ebersole and colleagues, and uh, it's called Many Labs Five: Testing Pre-Data Collection Peer Review as an intervention to increase replicability. And uh, I took a quick look at it. It seemed very interesting. I mean, please feel free to jump in and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. Uh, Quick interpretation. We've talked in the past about uh, replication in science, and there's a big project to try to replicate a lot of findings in the field of psychology that fell a little bit short of replicating. A A lot of the effect sizes were drastically smaller when they tried to replicate these findings that were originally published. And uh, so what these authors speculated was like, okay, um, you know, maybe some of these replication attempts had some limitations when you look at the methods that just didn't do a good job of replicating the original study uh, or just didn't elicit the exact phenomenon they were trying to get at. So let's be charitable. Maybe the failure to replicate is a failure of the protocol that was used to try to replicate these original findings. So the idea was before we collect data on these replication attempts, let's actually get some some experts in the area to peer review the methods we're going to use. Like take a look at what we plan to do and then we'll actually do it, you know, incorporating their feedback. So I, I think it was mostly like the authors of the original studies. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah like I, I think when when Mini Labs One came out, uh they're, you know, they, they basically said like, Hey, we looked at all of these various seminal effects in the field of psychology. Uh, a lot of them aren't replicating. Uh, and, and I think some of the authors that published the original work, like kind of took it personally. Yeah. Um, cause they, the, the, the people behind, uh, the mini lab studies, aren't alleging fraud like they're not alleging that anyone is doing anything bad just basically saying like look there's probably a fair amount of false positives in the literature uh but like you know people have their egos and whatnot and so i think like a fair amount of the of the authors of the original studies basically said like well look you said you were trying to do a direct replication of my study but like here's like one or two tiny details that differed between what I did and what your replication attempt did. And like, if you would have done things exactly like I did, my effect definitely would have replicated. And so I think this is basically just uh, like the Center for Open Science folks just like calling their bluff and saying like, fine, what do you want me to do? Yeah, like come on board, like help (laughs) us ensure 
that we are running the perfect experiment that would replicate your effect if your effect is replicable. Yeah, it, it does say here, like, commenters with the first round basically said that the uh, the reason that they failed to replicate the original effects is like, oh, you didn't adhere to uh, expert review. You used low-power tests. You, like, you didn't reliably and faithfully replicate this because of methodological reasons. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they basically... <laughs> Got, we're like, okay, fine. Like, let's get feedback. Let's, you know, hedge your bets as much as you'd like. And, and and let's remove any possible questions about statistical power issues by having fucking 1,300 subjects on average for uh, for all of the effects they're testing. Yeah. So, so they say we, we picked 10 studies, revised the replication protocols, got formal peer review prior to conducting these replication attempts, and administered the replication attempts using these revised protocols across multiple laboratories. So like they were really trying to do this like as thoroughly as you possibly can. And basically they found that following this kind of updated pre-registered plan for data collection, the revised protocols that they used in this study, the effect sizes were very similar to the replication attempts previously that the original authors were a little bit annoyed by. I think if anything, it was actually a bit worse. So if, if memory serves, uh, and and I, I think actually I think this might be the difference. I think in this study, basically they were looking at at a subset of the effects that they were attempting to replicate in Mini Labs One. But I, I do remember Mini Labs One like fairly vividly, and the the mean effect size of the replication attempts was about half of the mean effect size of of the original papers. Uh, and in this one, the, the mean effect size for the replication attempts was basically like a fifth, the effect size of the original papers. Yeah. So at the very least, uh, it didn't go, (laughs) it didn't go the way the original authors were probably hoping, right? It'd be like, you think at least like, okay, well it got a little bit closer to what we found. If anything, it looks like the opposite. So, this is uh you know it, it's psychology research so it's not directly related to like topics that we look into a lot but because we've talked about uh the importance of replication we've talked about the, the kind of open science movement in the past i figured it was a, a good thing to play us out because it's a little bit off topic but you know I, I think this kind of highlights why open science is important why replication attempts are important and to a lesser extent kind of tying it all together like why it's fun to do something like mass, you know, because I, I think a lot of people on the surface would be like, well, just, I don't know, like read the abstract, see what it says. And if you're really skeptical, read the full text. But when you're trying to really apply research findings and contextualize them and, and get a good working understanding of a body of literature, you, you have to look out for this kind of stuff and say, okay, well, here's a study that has a finding, but what do similar studies find? Has have there been replication attempts? If so, what do those replication attempts look like? You know, trying to piece together a body of literature and cut through the false positives, the false negatives, uh, you know, the what's the term, like the first finder's effect? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the ones that's really tricky because, you know, uh, I'm approximating the, the definition, but basically for, for any particular given topic, 
the most likely scenario is that the first studies to get published in that area are going to be the ones that find something pretty noteworthy, right? Like pretty exciting and kind of flashy. And it's not because anybody's doing anything wrong. It's kind of, it's kind of secondary to human nature, right? Like we start doing research on this topic and if, if we try something new and something's kind of boring and stupid, we might be like, Oh, whatever. Like I didn't invest much in that study anyway. Like what, who cares? We'll just leave it. But if you find something cool and alarming and like really flashy, you're like, dude, let's rush this to the press. This is cool. And so, you know, when you're trying to evaluate, especially a brand new body of literature, there's so much context that goes into trying to to really make practical replications or practical applications and takeaways from, okay, we've got one awesome study on this that has this really flashy effect. And then, you know, one similar study with nothing. What do we do with that? Yeah. Well, and I mean, one of the other problems with, with that as well is like, not only does the first finder effect exist, um, but just like the way the way that sciences tend to work is like there's almost like a patronage system where uh, like if you're writing about a particular phenomenon, you are expected to cite and discuss uh, the the researchers and the paper that like first discovered and communicated whatever that phenomenon is. And so essentially the the first finder effect uh, the outcome of it is generally like the first finding in a body of literature tends to overestimate the effect size. And then, you know, just based on how expectations around citing quote unquote seminal findings works is like that paper is the paper in that area of the literature that is going to get cited and discussed the most. And so it, uh, it, it, it basically like sets, an unrealistic baseline, not just simply from existing, but from being the the study that like basically everything else is compared against. Uh, and so it becomes like normalized as like, you know, th- this wasn't just the first finding. This is the most normal finding because it's the finding that people are going to be exposed to the most. Yeah. Like if you think about uh, the topic of progressive overload, like if, if like if I say progressive overload, the first name that comes to people's minds is Delorme because like he's the guy who did that like in the 40s with army people. Um, and I mean, like, dude, there's so many fucking resistance training studies now. Uh, there are literally thousands of names that you could associate with the concept of progressive overload. Uh, but I mean, if you're writing a narrative review paper about progressive overload, like first thing you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to say the name Delorme and you're going to talk about a study. Um, and actually come to think about it or come to think of it. I don't know what the effect magnitude was <laughs> in the Delorme study. So that, that might not be the best, uh, the the best example of what I'm talking about, but like you, you get what I'm saying. Like yeah. that, that is, that is the researcher and the paper that comes to mind first when you think progressive overload. And so if if there's some other like sub area of inquiry where, you know, there's there's someone else who found an effect first and like their their name gets brought up all the time, their shit gets cited constantly. If they overestimated the effect size in their seminal paper, which they probably did, that that is basically then the effect size that people come to anticipate moving forward until there's enough studies to like meta-analyze and realize like, oh wait, the actual effect here is quite a bit smaller. 
Yeah. I mean, what's really cool about the these replication attempts in psychology is they, they really reinforce the idea that research is cool and important and valuable, but we can't take any single study at face value and assume that that effect size we see in one study is just absolutely the one true effect size that we can expect moving forward. And whenever you look at uh, published literature, you really got to dig in and think, you know, about the the context of the study, the context of how publishing works, like as we're talking about with that first finders effect, um, there's a lot to consider there. So I'm looking forward to our next episode. One week from today, we're going to have the whole mass crew on. Uh, Greg obviously is coming back. Uh, we're going to have Eric Helms, Mike Zordos. And we're going to talk about all of our favorite studies from volume four of mass, basically covering the entire year of 2020. So we hope that you'll join us a week from today. And we will be back soon. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do. So we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.